So we are the third week into our series that will carry us through until the end of uh, school, mid-June, on what we believe as Christians, and we're using the Apostles' Creed, the most ancient declaration, the most concise and yet complete statement of the core beliefs that all of those who historically hold to the Christian faith hold dear, and we do as well. Last week, Lou talked about, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And today we're going to talk about him as the creator of heaven and earth. And our first text for today is the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And I invite you to turn there with me. This will be a historic sermon because my son Tommy is going to tag team with me today. John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to ask three questions today. First of all, what does the Scripture actually teach about creation itself? Explore a doctrine of creation. Second, what does creation teach us about God? And then third, what are some of the numerous, far more than we could explore today, what are some of the important implications for us? So the first area we're going to talk about is what Scripture teaches about creation. I think before I really get into the the four points I want to share on this, what I want to say clearly to each of you is that as I read the Scriptures, what the Bible teaches about creation is primarily about who and why, not how and when. Our primary focus since the scientific age, since people have been coming against some of the traditional interpretations of the creation in Scripture, has been to try to disprove science, disprove other theories and discoveries by getting into the debate of how things came into being. And in doing that, I believe we have lost the primary context of Scripture. And as you know, our goal each time we come into Scripture is to try to come at it as cleanly as possible. To ask what was the intent of the original author as God inspired them. And what I'm saying to you is with very strong conviction 
the primary focus of Scripture on creation is who and why, not how and when. It's not about method, it's about meaning. I've mentioned this before, especially in our study through the Old Testament, but this is an opportunity to reinforce this. In John chapter one, John intentionally invokes the first chapter of Genesis. Before he gets into the actual historic narrative, before he actually begins telling the story, he puts forth an allegory. And he intentionally begins with, in the beginning. But not just God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Here is a classic example in Scripture of an historical account that does not begin that way begins with a highly stylized literary analogy, mirroring Genesis chapter one. So what that indicates to us is how the apostles and how the Hebrews in the day of Christ viewed the book of Genesis. When you look at Genesis chapter one, beyond the English translation, what you see is not historical narrative. The historical narrative picks up later on. You see highly stylized, some actually call it poetry. There is an intentional repetition and structure and symbolism in Genesis chapter one. My point is not to prove or disprove whether or not the world was created in seven days or whether God used evolution, because that's not the point of Genesis one. My point is to tell you that Genesis one is trying to communicate some very important things about who and why, the original listener would see very clearly that what Moses was doing was taking the very things that the rest of the world actually worshiped, the moon and the stars and the birds and the various creatures and the trees even, all the things that other people worshiped as divine, Moses was saying no, they fit into a very well-designed system of creation, they are created, God is the creator. In the beginning, God created. John helps us understand that it wasn't just God the Father. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Greek word for was is the word aime. It's in the imperfect, indicative, active tense. What it really means is, had always been. So what John is saying was, in the beginning, when everything began, God and the Word had always been, had no beginning. And the word, Jesus, was with God. The Greek word for with means that he was on equal par, face to face, distinct in personality. And that word was God, same Greek word, had always been. Before there was a time, even Jesus himself existed, the Son is eternal, as is the Father, as is the Spirit. Scripture's emphasis is that God created it all. What we need to do when we look at Scripture with integrity is to ask, what does Scripture require that we conclude? What is the point that the author is trying to make and what does Scripture require that we conclude? And everything else, even if we call it a belief, is not a scriptural belief, it's a secondary doctrine. And we have to treat those doctrines lightly. And creationism, and our view of how God made things, is predominantly extra-biblical. 
I could open up for questions right now, but frankly, I'm really afraid to. <laughs> so what I'd like to do instead is to move on and share four things that Scripture teaches about creation, try to create a doctrine of creation. Recently, I heard an excellent sermon by Paul Stewart on this. He contrasts four truths in Scripture about creation with four worldviews and philosophies. Let me give them to you and then go through them one at a time. First of all, creation is real, creation is good, creation is designed, and creation is finite. The first, creation is real. One of the philosophies that uh, the early Christians were dealing with an Eastern philosophy that we refer to broadly as pantheism. Pantheism, Eastern religion teaches that the physical world is an illusion. And that in order to find truth in reality, we have to escape from the illusion and literally transcend the physical world. The Bible says that creation is real. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's real. I remember years ago I was on a missions trip to Fiji because somebody had to. <laughs> and I was part of an evangelistic team. I could tell you some really funny stories. I, I was, this is when I was traveling as a full-time concert artist and um, I hadn't achieved a whole lot of acclaim but because I was the musician for this crusade team, they had posters of me all over the main island in Fiji, and it said, Tom Sparling, famous gospel singer from America. So we show up at the stadium, and it's packed. There's probably 30,000 people, and they introduce me, and everybody, everybody stands and begins applauding like, like the Beatles have shown up in town, you know? And then they all got quiet, and I started playing my introduction, and three measures into my introduction, they all stood up and were applauding outrageously because of my guitar introduction. It took my wife a good couple years to get me back to reality after that. <laughs> but while we were there, uh, dominant part of the culture was from India, and we actually toured a Krishna temple. We saw various idols, and uh, I remember speaking to a Krishna priest, and I said to him, so do you really believe that the world is situated on top of four elephants, who are on top of the world tortoise, the world turtle. And I said, yes, I, I believe that. And I said, now, what do you do with all of the science? Now we have gone to the moon, we've turned back, we've taken pictures of the earth, and we know for a fact that it is suspended in space. And he looked directly at me and he said, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. And the Bible says no, Creation is real. God created the heavens and the earth. Second thing we see about creation in Scripture is that it's good. There was a Western error of thinking that the early church had to come against as well. It was called Gnosticism. You see, the Greco-Roman world, the prominent philosophy there was not that the physical wasn't real, but that the physical was bad. It was evil. And the way that you achieve some spiritual level is to deny the flesh. The soul is imprisoned by the body. Self-denial sets it free. It really, at the heart of it is legalism and restrictions. That idea has strongly invaded Christianity. Wherever legalism is, we don't understand the true doctrine of creation. 
Everything that God created, what did he say about it in Genesis 1? He said, it is good. And when it was finally done, how did he finish? It is very good. Gnosticism said God can't interact with the world because the physical world is evil, therefore God himself does not interact with the world. Demigods, manifestations of God interact with the world, therefore Jesus could not have been truly God at best. Jesus was one with divine essence but a manifestation because God can't touch what is bad, what is evil. The Bible says God steps into the world he has brought into being and gets his hands dirty. And he forms man out of the dust of the ground. It's good. It's good. When scripture looks to eternity, it doesn't look to a disembodied state. If you understand heaven as a place where you're just going to be some spirit floating around, if you think that's what all of heaven is about, you understand the doctrine of creation because what we see in the future is a redeemed heaven and earth. We will be resurrected. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. We will be physical beings in eternity. Why? Because what God made, every bit of it, is very, very good. The third thing that we can say as part of a doctrine of creation is that creation is designed. Psalm 19.1, all creation declares the glory of God, the heavens, the skies, reveal the work of his hands. That Hebrew word is about skill, craftsmanship, planning, design. It's that principle that says design points to a designer. Look up at this ceiling. If I were to tell you that that just showed up, just happened, you'd say, uh, you're kidding. Well, why? Because there's grid work, there's design. And I know somebody planned that. In the same way, even though creation shows a great deal of variety and there appears to be chaos in it as well, at the core of it, we see systems, consistency, we see basic mathematic principles under it all. We see design, we see plan. The worldview that that comes against is secularism. Pantheism says creation doesn't exist. Gnosticism says creation is evil, physical world is evil. Secularism says the physical world is pointless. It's meaningless. You go into a psychology class in any of the universities here, and the professors will say what most people need is more self-esteem. We need to build their sense of worth and self-esteem. But then you leave that class and you go down to a science class, a biology class, and the professor will essentially say, we're nothing. We are a cosmic occurrence with no purpose. Scripture says there is design, design points to designer, and therefore indicates purpose. Related to mankind, Scripture says God created us in his image. And therefore every human being has inherent value and worth and an eternal purpose. The fourth thing that Scripture teaches is that creation is finite. It's finite. Now, I'm not arguing this in terms of physics. I'm not a physics expert, although I believe that 
Science is saying now it's pretty clear that all of the universe had a beginning and now we know it will someday have an end. My point in terms of finite is to come against the ancient philosophy that is emerging once again in societies all over the world today known as paganism. It was the dominant worldview and religion before Christianity came into Europe. Paganism worships nature. Nature is divine and seeks to tap into the spiritual elements of the world. Scripture says, no, that's turning what was created into an idol, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The main point of Genesis is that everything else besides God is made. Only God is infinite and to be worshiped. That's ultimately what creation is for. It's to bring glory to God. It's to turn our hearts in such a way that we see the creator, give him glory, and worship him. So let's move into what creation itself teaches us about God. I want to turn with you quickly to Psalm chapter 19. There are four primary ways that God reveals himself to us. Creation, conscience, canon, scripture, and Christ. With each of those progressive means of revelation, God reveals himself more clearly and more specifically. Creation is what we refer to as natural revelation. And while creation doesn't reveal to us everything we need to know about God, Scripture says it reveals enough to us to acknowledge that God is there and to turn towards him and seek him. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, the worlds, to the ends of the world. First of all, creation reflects God's glory. All creation declares the glory of God. Second, creation reveals God's design. We've already covered that, but it reveals that God is the designer behind it all, the work of your hands. Now, just look on the screen with me uh, in Romans chapter 1, and let's say this verse together. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul tells us that what would otherwise be unseen about God, invisible about God, can be clearly seen through creation. And he lists two things, and they become points three and four of what creation tells us about God. So the third is that creation demonstrates God's power. Contemplate the immense power that brought this world into being ex nihilo. However you see that happening, from the big bang of science or the big bang that God just said, let there be, and bang it was. (laughs) Imagine the immense power that's demonstrated about the creator. And then second, it declares God's divinity. 
his divine nature, and that brings us back to what I said again just a moment ago. Ultimately, creation calls us to worship the creator. It's interesting that the creation account in Genesis 1 doesn't ramp up and end with the glorious creation of man. It ends with what? Seventh day? Sabbath. It ends with celebration. And what that teaches us is that ultimately, most places where creation is invoked and observed in Scripture, the ultimate goal is that we would honor the source, that we would worship the Creator. That's ultimately the goal. And that's what Sabbath is about. Dancing with God in creation. Pausing from our work and our creativity into celebration. Enjoying God's creation and celebrating and worshiping the one who brought it into being and celebrates with us in relationship and in communion. You move on from the verse we just read in Romans 1. Paul says that because those things can be clearly seen, the ultimate downfall of the human race was because they refused to acknowledge their creator and worship. Instead, they turned and worshiped and valued created things. Ultimately, creation's purpose is that you and I might worship God. Now, time is going to come, and I want to set him up by putting this statement up here. The depth of your worship is determined by the size of your God. If creation is ultimately a means by which we worship God, we're going to look a bit about scale. Hey, everybody. If everybody could just uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let's talk about scale. Imagine you're a shepherd living 3,000 years ago. You're lying on your back looking up at the stars because, frankly, other than the sheep, they're the most interesting thing around. You might see something like this. You've seen it all your life because they didn't have light pollution yet. You see the band of the Milky Way, although you don't know what that is yet. You see some stars that are slightly different colors than the others. Maybe those are planets, if you knew what a planet was. All you understand is what you see, and maybe in the huge vastness you start to feel insignificant as those distant bodies move along the night sky. Then one day in the future you're writing down your thoughts and you attempt to reconcile those feelings of insignificance with the amazing beauty of the sky and the God you've worshipped your whole life. Maybe it turns into a song. Maybe it turns into this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, 
which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So recently, scientists have confirmed that the Voyager 1 probe has left our solar system. Um, solar system. <laughs> to be more accurate, it's left the heliosphere, which is a, uh, a band of solar wind about twice the distance from the sun as Pluto that forms sort of a bubble against the cosmic soup of the rest of our galaxy. It's taken about 35 years for Voyager to reach this point, and after meandering through our solar system, it has finally reached speeds of over 38,000 miles per hour, which works out to 50 times the speed of sound, or 10 miles per second. For comparison, a bullet fired from a 50 caliber sniper rifle only, only travels at 2,000 miles an hour on average. However, time and distance on a galactic scale are a bit different than miles per hour. So one astronomical unit, or AU, is 93 million miles, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. In all this time, Voyager has traveled 128 AU. But this unit of measurement is still lacking. One light year is roughly 63,000 AU, or almost 6 trillion miles. This is how far light can travel in one year. Now, the closest star to us is Proxima Centauri. At about 4.2 light years away, it would take Voyager 1 at its current speed, 76,000 years to reach it. And that's just our closest interstellar neighbor. The total size of the Milky Way galaxy is between 100 and 120,000 light years across. It contains between 100 and 400 billion stars and even more planets. We're discovering more planets all the time. A lot of rogue ones just flying like with no stars, terrifying balls of death. <laughs> now, the Milky Way belongs to something else called the local group. The local group is a smattering of our nearest 54-plus galactic neighbors of mostly Andromeda, and then there's a bunch of dwarf galaxies as well. Now, the local group is 10 million light years across. The local group belongs to the Virgo supercluster, which is 110 million light years across. This supercluster, along with millions of others, form galactic filaments, massive structures made up of clusters of clusters of galaxies. Those filaments join with countless others to form the observable universe. The observable universe is roughly 93 billion light years across. Uh, now, I'm not sure you're actually getting the correct scale of this based on the other pictures we saw, so we're going to zoom in, zoom in again, zoom in one more time. Okay, so inside of that circle, that is the previous picture we saw, the big wide thing. This is large, is what I'm trying to get across here. So zoom back out. Now, Scientists are now theorizing, as we're trying to figure out the, the size and the shape of the universe, that the actual universe, not just the observable universe, is 250 to 400 times larger than this. It took me actually walking up the scales to actually comprehend the size of this. It makes me think of uh, one of my favorite authors, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, one of his quotes, space is big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long walk down to the pharmacists, but that's just peanuts to space. 
So let's do a quick comparison between the sky, night sky here, and the observable known universe. Now, at a glance, they look pretty similar. On the left, we can see what it is David saw when he looked at the heavens. The right is what we can observe using the latest technology and data. They look similar to the naked eye, but where David saw merely stars, we see the universe. Superclusters and galaxies, supernovas and quasars, black holes so immense they bend time and space, nebulas, stars of all sizes from neutron stars that pack the density of several suns into a sphere 12 miles across, spinning at tens of thousands of rotations a second. Super big hypergiants the size of the orbit of Jupiter. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man, that you care for him. Now, we, we don't know exactly when David wrote the psalm that we read. Maybe something similar to what I described earlier took place. Maybe he wrote it from on top of a palace one night. What we do know is David felt dwarfed by the scope of the heavens, stretching from horizon to horizon. Beautiful in a way those of us living in urban environments rarely get to see. When I was in South Africa, I got to see the Milky Way for I think the first time I can actually remember. And I could see Mars, and it was, ugh. <laughs> David looked at the heavens. And some people might feel hopeless at the sight of, of insane vastness and hugeness. But David knew God, and he knew his heart. He saw the glory of God demonstrated in the vastness of the small glimpse of the universe that was available to him at the time. He knew the God who created all of that personally cared for him. So as we sit here thousands of years later, and we consider the heavens, I want to point out two things that we can take away from this. First, I think I'll rephrase Mr. Adams, that God is big. I'm talking huge. I mean really, really immense. We barely grasp the size of all creation, but it's just peanuts to God. When David's son Solomon was building the temple... He said this in Second Chronicles. Who is able to build a dwelling place for God since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? So think about this for a minute. God cannot be contained inside our universe. Thousands of years ago, Dad was just talking about this, people worshipped the sun because it was seen as the biggest dog in the park, the source of all life and power. Scientists up to a couple decades ago thought the sun was the source of all life on the earth until we found thermal vents. But he is beyond being contained by our very universe. People worshipped nature. And now as we look back from this cosmic context, we can see how absolutely tiny our sun is, how tiny Earth is, how we absolutely, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter. It's ludicrous to think that we used to think we were the center of everything. We look at that and we see and we can rejoice that the God that we worship is not only greater than the sun, greater than nature, but he is beyond the fabric of our universe. How much more worthy of worship now is he today when we have a greater understanding of how big the universe is compared to the tiny scope that David saw when he wrote those words? Second, the amazing thing is that God knows and cares for us individually. David described this when he wrote Psalm 147, when he says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds he determines the number of stars and call them each by name. There's a lot of stars. The same God 
that knows the names of all of those stars heals our broken hearts and binds our wounds. The same God that has numbered the stars has also numbered the very hairs on our heads, as Jesus told us in the Gospels. Lou and I do, the, uh, do that group on Tuesdays, which has been great, and lately we've been talking about, about Jesus and, and why he came and, and why he had to face the crucifixion. This is why. How immense, how complete, how great must the love of God be that for us, so small, he who knows the very names of the stars and exists eternally outside the confines of all of creation would step down not only into our universe, but into this little blue dot and die for us. That kind of love says, I would do anything, anything to bring you back to me. So let's read Psalm 8, 4 through 5 again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Ultimately, creation's purpose is to declare the glory of God. Paul says in Romans, from him, through him, to him are all things. And the more we learn, the more cause we have to celebrate him and be in wonder that he has chosen to have a drama of redemption occur on our planet with our race. It's amazing. Let me just list four ways that we might and should respond to this. The first is, creation should be enjoyed. (laughs) If anybody should enjoy creation, it ought to be Christians. And yet we've created such an anti-fun approach because we've bought into Gnosticism. We've bought into the idea that the flesh is evil. It's not. God made the flesh. Flesh is good. God has standards for how they're meant to be used that are designed for his glory and to maximize our use of them. But Christians ought to be the ones that enjoy creation more than anybody. Think about this. Jesus' first miracle. What was it? (laughs) Yeah, he ramped up the party by making the best wine of the night. That was Jesus' first miracle. Did you know that only when Welch's company learned how to stop the fermenting process. Until that, there was no such thing as grape juice. Did you know that? Before that, grapes either went towards wine, if you intentionally preserve them, or what did they turn into? Vinegar. Those were your choices. So can we get past this notion once and for all that in the Bible they drank grape juice? They didn't. And I don't either. Well, I do, but only because I want to, not because I have to. Stepping on a lot of stuff today, aren't I? Yeah, God wants us to enjoy his creation, and we ought to. Second, creation should be cared for by us. In the book of Genesis, there are three terms that man is is used in relation to man. Tend the earth, fill the earth, and subdue the earth. Being created in God's image, God's actual intention in putting you and I as his image bearers on the planet was to make more of what he had created. 
to take the resources he had put in place and beneficently but creatively draw those resources out of the earth and make more for God's glory. Now instead, in filling the earth, we have brought our brokenness. And that's why all of creation is waiting for that day when when God comes. But until then, you and I, as God's children, can still fulfill our purpose by caring for, by using responsibly the resources of the earth, by making it better because we're here. Third, I don't have any time to talk about this, but I'm just going to put it out there. Science is your friend. There is nothing science will ever discover in the universe that will ever do anything more except show us how great our creator is. Nothing. Our problem isn't scripture being threatened. Our problem is our suppositions, our mythology, our conclusions that we then profess as truth, even though scripture doesn't require it of us, and then we stake the whole integrity of Christianity on those things being true, and then science finds out they're not. We were doing it centuries ago, we're still doing it. Science is your friend. Not where sinful men who refuse to acknowledge their creator take it, but we ought to embrace the study because the bigger your God, the more profound your worship, amen? Amen. Okay, and finally, God's love and care for us, this God who created everything, should result in wonder, gratitude, and worship. I'm so thankful that Tommy brought it down to that when he talked about that second part of what David said. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? When we understand the greatness of our God as creation allows us to see him, it ought to make us that much more awestruck at what the incarnation meant. That that God that all of the universe cannot contain, took on flesh. It ought to really help us appreciate and bow in utter worship at Paul's words in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, that God, the God of all creation, did not consider that something to be held, but made himself Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Do you understand the depth of it when Paul says he humbled himself? That God became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so with the Father, our response needs to be, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.